Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. Just got back into town. There's been a change with a guest. So instead of me canceling the show, I decided I'm going to run a, a replay of Dr. George Gaines. That aired back in July of 2017. If you didn't catch it, you're going to want to catch his story this time. Now, this was back before I was recording or running live streams with uh, video. So it's just audio, but it's a great story, a very interesting man, and I'm sure you'll really uh, like that. A couple of things. Next week, we have Chris Lado back on. He's the uh, retired F-16 pilot. He's been working hard. He's done a lot of things positive in the UFO field. We're going to be talking to him about that. The following week, I'm going to be uh, coming at you from James Fox Home and Studio over in Vermont. You don't want to miss that one. That should be a lot of fun. And uh, that, uh, that'll be on May 3rd. So down in the show notes, you'll see a link that I'm going to be on a show right after this one with the New York MUFON eye detective, Chris DiPerno. Um, so that will also be in the audio feed on our podcast. And speaking of audio feeds, our blog is made into an audio blog every week. And that's always on our uh, podcast feed by Charles Lear. And this week, it's called A UFO Creature Encounter Report from Kufo, Japan. It's about two seven-year-old boys back in 1975 that had quite an encounter. Very detailed. Uh, so check that out. Uh, well, we're ready to go with Dr. George Gaines. I do want to thank everyone, first of all, for supporting the show. I couldn't do it without you. Anyone can do that over at podcastufo.com. You'll see the link for only $2 or more. You can help us out. And we are ready to go with George Gaines. It's an incredible story. I will be live in chat. So um, I will be interacting with you there. And let's try to get this thing going. Our guest this evening is Dr. Uh, w. George Gaines. He grew up in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, he's lived and worked uh, throughout the United States and Europe. And we're going to talk about a, a sighting he had, uh, an encounter he had when he was very young and what followed after that. And uh, welcome to the show, George. Well, thanks, Martin. I'm, I'm pleased to be with you tonight. Thank you. Now, you and I, it's funny, you and I talked on the phone about a whole other subject, and um, I came clean and told you I did a show on UFOs. That's how our conversation started. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, so uh, can you give a little bit of background? And, and also, um, you're, you know, you've, uh, you've had a professional career and all that, and you know, it's interesting how um, this encounter probably changed uh, your way of thinking, didn't it? It certainly did. Uh, and, and let me just begin by saying that um, much of the story that I'll, I'll tell tonight has been reconstructed over a long period of time. Um, a, a lot of what I'm going to tell, uh, I didn't know at the time, but it's things that I have found out since then by doing research and follow-up. So 
uh, people might wonder, well, did you know this at the time? And the answer is no, of course I didn't know. I was a 12-year-old kid. Uh, all I knew is what happened uh, that night. And, uh, you know, as an adult, I have tried to follow this as best as I could. And it's only in recent years that I was able to learn more about the sighting. Oh, you actually learned more. Uh, now, is this... Um so this, uh, why, don't, why don't you go into the story, how the whole encounter uh, began and the whole situation? Sure. Um, well, we go back to uh, July the 23rd, 1956, uh, Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Pensacola uh, at the time, and still is, uh, the cradle of naval aviation, it's... Uh, uh, there are many bases uh, there uh, that are, were there back in, in the 50s and probably even more than there are today. Uh, at least a half a dozen uh, bases where naval aircraft flew in and out regularly. Uh, I was born in Pensacola. My, my father was a, a naval aviator uh, during the war and also an instructor, and then uh, he ended up uh, flying um, heavy bombers uh, in World War II out of England uh, for uh, for the Navy. Uh, not too many Navy pilots uh, flew heavy bombers out of England in World War II, but my dad was one of those and uh, was fortunate enough to to survive. Um, I'll come back to him a little bit later because uh, he's he's an interesting figure in in his own right. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I grew up in an environment of uh, being extremely familiar with aircraft in the sky, day, night, and and I prided myself uh, as as a, a young aviation enth enthusiast. I mean, my my goal was to become a Marine Corps pilot one day. Uh, that never happened, but uh, I I was very very interested in aircraft and could identify. Any any aircraft by type and model or so forth and, uh, and 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 I was also interested in in UFOs. I'll just say that right up front. Um, I remember at a very tender age when the Roswell incident was first publicized. I remember how excited my mother got about it, and uh, she uh, you know told me about it. And from from the earliest times I can remember, I, I was interested in astronomy, in the stars, in aircraft, and through just simply through uh, what I would call logic, uh, I was convinced in my own mind that, that we were not alone. But I'd never seen anything and was always sort of looking, but never really saw anything other than what was obvious, uh, aircraft flying at night. Uh, George, uh, hang on just a second there. Can we, sure. before we move on from this, I wanted to ask you, because you don't hear a lot about people talking about Roswell when it happened, you know, so I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Um, you you know, I, I understand that, you know, the news went out uh, and it was in papers everywhere and, yes. uh, you know, it was publicized and then it was, you know, the weather, the balloon the next day. And then nobody talked about it for for many many years. So do you 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 remember hearing about that, 
and uh, you you probably heard the next day that it was just a weather balloon. But did you remember that um, in your childhood and as you got older, and then when it resurfaced in the late nineteen eighties, you said, "Oh yeah," or something like that. How did that all? How did that all yeah. play out? I mean, it was it was it was a very powerful early memory. Um, I remember a great deal about my early childhood. Um, it's it's not the the blur that some people have, but uh, I'm fortunate to to have have some very clear memories. Uh, I remember when World War II ended, and I was very small at the time. Um, and and but but I remember the Roswell incident being in the paper. I don't remember reading about it, but I know my mother read about it. And and then when they came up with the uh, debunking story, my mother was a, quite a skeptic, and she says, "I think they've just made that up. I mm. think it's a cover up." Well, and and so that's my earliest recollection of Roswell. And then of course when it came, it's been back in the news, you know, several times uh, that you know. I guess I always believed it was just a cover up by by the government to uh uh shield us from the the, the truth. Mm-hmm. So um uh, that that was my my attitude. So at the time of the sighting, I would say that I was certainly receptive and anything but a skeptic. But I was not a child that was subject to wild imaginations. Uh I was very scientific in my orientation and um uh, you know, have have had a, a a good career as as a behavioral scientist, and and so I consider myself a pretty cold-blooded, objective observer. So, the the way this happened was um, it was a hot it was a hot summer night, and uh, I had a little girlfriend that lived down the street, and uh, her parents uh, invited me and and her to go out uh, to the airport. And, of course, you might say, well, go to the airport. What is that? (laughs) Well, in Pensacola in 1956, that was about the most exciting thing for for kids to do, was to go out to the airport and wait for the occasional aircraft to land because then you could see them come up and you could feel the prop wash and all that and see the people getting off and people getting on. It was a very exciting thing to do. So uh, we went out to the airport, and I remember that her mother and father were not particularly interested in in hanging around with us. They were in the coffee shop there uh, having, uh, I guess, coffee and pie or or whatever they were drinking. And uh, so my my little girlfriend and I went out to the fence. And the fence was, uh, you know, this is not like an airport today. I mean, it was just a a chain-link fence. And you could, I can remember, you know, putting my fingers on it and, you know, holding on to the fence and kind of leaning back and forth. And so we were just looking for aircraft to to come in and, and land. And um, as it turned out, um, my girlfriend was a year older than me. She was 13. And she um, she had to wear glasses for distance. 
and but she didn't have them on that night i guess because she was hoping that they you know i might try to kiss her well that that was so far from my, my mind as a 12 year old i mean i just wasn't about to do anything like that but but she didn't you know with being you know a young lady she was slightly vain and wanted to appear very very attractive which she was and still is and and so we were looking at the fence and looking up at the moon, which was not a crescent moon, but it wasn't a quarter moon either. It was somewhere in, in between. And there were some stars that were very, very close to the moon. And I, I commented to her, I said, look at, look at those stars. They're right next to the moon. And so we looked at them for a while, and she said, yeah, yeah, I see them. And, and in fact, she really didn't see anything. So my my one witness was was uh, <laughs> worthless, and and so I noticed that one of the stars seemed to be getting bigger and bigger. I said, "Wow!" I said, "Look at that! That's that could be an airplane coming in," and but but it was stationary. It just never moved, never moved. It got bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden, it got so big that it divided into two what appeared to be stars. I said, holy smoke, look at that. There are two of them. And, and so they, they remained stationary for at least five or six minutes without moving. But they, it, one became two. And then I thought, I said, I believe they're moving to the south because we were looking eastward. And uh, I said, yes, yes, look, they're, they're both moving together. And then, then they began to move apart, where one went up and the other remained stationary, more or less flying along the horizon. And so this, this really got my juices going because I'd never seen anything quite like this. And then the one on top accelerated rapidly and then took off straight up, just like it was shot out of a cannon. And I, I'd never seen any aircraft do anything like that and i was just stunned to see it and then the second one the lower one kept moving straight along the horizon to toward the south toward the gulf of mexico and then it took off at the same rate of speed and just it was just a blur i mean it wasn't even fast it just it just streaked up and was gone so that was the sighting mm -hmm. and all I can say is that um, on the way home, you know, we told her parents what we had seen, and they seemed very interested and, and believed us because they knew I was not the kind of young man who, who made up silly stories. And um, But when I got home, I told my mother about it, and, um, you know, it, it just was uh, – she said, well, well, make sure you write down everything so you'll remember it. And and so I did, and and I was in my room making notes and writing it out, and I was so frightened by what I saw. Um, it wasn't, I mean, there was the initial exhilaration, but upon reflection, I realized that I had seen something that was absolutely uh, mind blowing, and I was I was afraid. I, I don't know what I was afraid of. I guess I was afraid that. Maybe they saw me and knew that I saw them, and and that 
they they somehow I had a feeling that they must have known that I saw this, and and so uh, I, I made detailed notes uh, on everything. And as a, as a young scientist, I, later when I was in high school, I won the science fair uh, as a sophomore. So that gives you an idea of the kind of notes that I was making even at, at 12 years of, of age. So I made very, very detailed notes. And so the next day I told my mother, I said, Mother, I said, I, I'm going to write a report and, and send it to the Air Force. And she says, oh, no, no, you you don't want to do that. <laughs> I said, well, why, why not? She says, oh, no, she said, uh, that, that would just create problems. You, you don't want to do that. Don't do that. So... I went ahead and I wrote up a letter, and I, I consolidated my notes and put it in the, the best language that I could. And I wrote, I addressed it to UFO Investigations, uh, Eglin Air Force Base, Florida, and mailed it. We didn't have zip codes in 1956, and, <laughs> and, and Eglin was, you know, figured the post office knew where that was because it's not really in a city, it's just Eglin Air Force Base. And I dropped it in the mail and didn't think anything more about it. Hmm. Now, less than a week later, it was a Saturday morning, the phone rings. And so my job at the house, since my, my parents were divorced, so I lived with my mother and my grandmother. And, and, and so my job as the man of the house was to always answer the phone, which I did. And... A man on the other end said, um, may I speak to George Gaines? And I said, this is he. He said, um, is this the same George that lives at uh, such and such an address? I said, yes, it is. And he says, is this the same George who sent a report to the Air Force a few days ago about what you had seen? And I took a deep breath <laughs> and said, uh, yes, it is. And he says, well, great. He said, George, um, what are you doing this morning? I said, and so I immediately said, oh, um, well, um, I, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going out, I'm going to the pool to swim because I, I was a collegiate swimmer and high school swimmer. And so I, I was, you know, we're going to go to practice. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to swim practice. And he said, George, he said, you just sit tight will be right over. Mm. And I remember those words so clearly. George, you just sit tight. We'll be right over. It <laughs> didn't say, can we come by? How do you do or anything? We're coming over. So I realized then that um, I was in a jam, and uh, I had to explain to my mother very quickly what had happened. I said, mother, mother. I said, <laughs> she said, who is that? I said, oh, it was a nice man. Uh, you remember the, uh, I said I was thinking about submitting a report to the Air Force. She says, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. And uh, I said, they're, they're coming over. She says, oh, my God. She says, now we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I mean, this is 1956, and, you know, <laughs> uh, things were different then. It was a, a different world, and so... You, you didn't file reports or anything unless you um, had good reason, and, and I thought I had good reason. So, you know, I, I told my grandmother, and, and she says, oh, Lordy, she says, uh, you're in trouble now. I said, well, I, you know, 
I told I told the truth. I didn't make anything up. It's all true. It's all true. And so while we were talking, I mean, this this couldn't have been more than five minutes from when I hung up, maybe not that long, by a grandmother who used to sit in, in the living room looking out the window. She says, oh, here they come. And so um, my mother and I went to the door, and she, you know, saw them. They pulled up in, in a four-door 1955 or 56. I couldn't tell the exact model. I always thought it was a 55 white Cadillac, <laughs> air-conditioned. It was absolutely spotless. And I remember thinking, why isn't it gray, and why doesn't it have uh, military uh, stencils on it, saying yeah. U.S. Air Force or U.S. Navy or something? But it was a civilian car, but it was a beautiful white Cadillac. And it was air-conditioned, and that was very unusual because we didn't have air-conditioning in our home in Florida. And and I never knew anybody who had an air-conditioned car until uh, in 1958. So this was, this was quite a rare event. And then out of the car come two Air Force officers, men who were dressed as Air Force officers, who come up and greet me and my mother on the front porch. So why don't I just take a quick pause and, and say, you know, do you have any questions that you want to ask me at this point before we get into the interview? Uh, no, not really. It's uh, uh, You and I had kind of gone over this in our talk. I think it was, I don't know, maybe four or four or five months ago. Um, so it's all almost like new coming at me. Um, but uh, uh, I couldn't remember the encounter of, the, you know, what, what your sighting was to begin with. But just the fact that um, uh, they came to see you that quickly is pretty, pretty interesting. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't think, think through it very carefully at the time. Uh, I was just uh, really scared that that they were coming to talk to me because I didn't know know what to expect. But the two the two gentlemen came in and they showed my mother some identification in addition to their their uniforms, and she welcomed them and said, "Please, please come in." They said, "Well, we we would like to talk to George about what what he saw," and and so uh, the the two were uh, it was a captain and uh, a lieutenant. And the uh, the captain um, did not have what I would call a military bearing. He seemed to be sweating a little bit. Um, it was hot, and and so he unbuttoned his blouse when he sat down and crossed his legs and made himself very much at at home. He just seemed very comfortable. Uh, and then the lieutenant uh, was just the opposite. He was buttoned down. Um, he had on a, um, I think what you call uh, uh, almost an, an Eisenhower jacket, as opposed to the, the the captain with the blouse. You know, it was uh, very tight around the waist, and he had a you know tie on, and he had a, a crew cut, uh, dark hair, with uh, salt and pepper. Uh, the captain uh, had had longer hair, and and just seemed more. He seemed more like a civilian dressed up in an Air Force uniform, um, and and so they they began the the questioning in the living room, 
And so the captain then asked uh, the lieutenant to go out and, you know, once we agreed to do it, he, he sent the lieutenant out to the car and he opened the trunk up and brought all sorts of stuff in. He brought in uh, uh, charts that, you know, were uh, on, on like a, a movie screen with flip charts. Uh, he brought in a movie screen, a movie projector, and what I remember most vividly was a reel-to-reel woolen sack tape recorder hmm. where everything in the interview was being taped. And that thing just ran and ran and ran. So uh, they began, and, and I don't remember all of what, what what was said or what was asked, but I do remember the, the captain uh, or the, uh, the lieutenant standing up like he was giving a military, uh, a military briefing. And he had a pointer stick, and he kept pointing, you know, <laughs> to uh, these these charts of the sky and and this and he was using a lot of technical language like azimuth perigee apogee and stuff that I really didn't what was not familiar with and the captain would would kind of interpret for him he said okay what what the lieutenant is saying is is this now George uh, tell me more about how you you saw this and they of course had had my report there which they let me look at and um, about that time, I'd say probably an hour into it, uh, my mother had gotten on the phone and called the parents of the young girl who was with me. And this was, it turned out to be a real embarrassment for her because she had nothing to add to it. Now, she, she had made up um, a report as well uh, of what she didn't see. And on that report, she doodled and drew a picture of, of like, an alien coming out of a spaceship. You know, it was a, a cartoon-like. And so when they came up there, the, the captain saw that, and he just he just grabbed it and took it out of range. He said, I'll take that. <laughs> and so, you know, he had that. She stayed around for about 15 minutes and, and listened and, and couldn't really add anything because she didn't see anything. And then, then they let asked her to, to go ahead, you know, she could go back home. So then they got out uh, some films and showed me films. Now, these some of the films I remember having seen before, and it was like, you know, lights and it was daytime scenes of maybe four or five uh, lights flying together or, or what, what could be interpreted as UFOs. And they kept asking me, is this what you saw? You see something like that? I said, well, no, no, mine, mine weren't doing that. It was just two. And, you know, I, can't, I really stuck to my story because, uh, Martin, that, that's the only story I had. And I didn't know what else to do other than stick, stick to the story. Now, did so, they were? This is kind of curious. They were showing you films. Yes, they had films. And um, uh, were there some really good films too of some UFOs? Uh, they they were decent. They were decent. Um, you know, of stuff. Uh, some stuff I'd seen in 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 books before, um, or magazines that had been published. So I kept thinking, well. I've seen all this before. He said, you ever seen this? I said, well, I've seen it. I've seen something like that in a magazine, but some, some I had not seen. And, um, so after we got through with the movies, I guess it was around lunchtime. Well, these guys didn't stop for lunch. Um, 
and and my mother and grandmother, particularly my grandmother, kept she was very nosy and kept walking into the room and walking out of the room and in and out like they she thought I was going to be molested or something. So finally, they told my mother. They said, "Look, we we'd like to question George now in private. Wow. Do you have another place where we can go?" And she said, "Yeah, we have a den, a small den. We went in there and set up shop and." They closed and locked the door to keep them out. <laughs> so the, the the interrogation, you know, and my grandma said, well, the poor child hasn't eaten. He said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll let him have something to eat when we're finished. <laughs> you know? mm. So uh, we went into the den, and they had they brought in some scrapbooks, what I'd call scrapbooks. They were, I guess, notebooks, big, big notebooks, big ones. And so he says, okay, I'm going to show you some some pictures. And so these were, you know, pictures of UFOs, photo, photographs, some sketches, and, you know, oh, you know, did it look like this? Did it looked like, I said, wow, that's pretty interesting there. I said, no, it didn't. He said, it looked like that. No, it didn't look like that. I'm telling you, it was just a light in the sky, just a very bright light in the sky, and it was moving slow and then it moved really fast so went on and on and you know went through several of these uh, books and finally there was another book there and I figured once we get through the last book these guys will leave because I was really really getting tired of, of you know telling the same story over and over again and then they, they would stop me and say okay George let's go back Tell me from the very beginning what you saw. Hmm. And so they must have had me repeat my story four or five times during this whole episode. Do you think they were trying to see if you would trip up a little or something? Yeah, I think they, they just, you know, were, you know, it's like the cops. I mean, they're, they're trying mm -hmm. to see, you know, as you tell the same story over and over again. And, and um, so finally, then the captain began to make suggestions and um he said um now when the craft got close um could you see any portholes i said i don't know how close it got but it wasn't close enough that i could see any detail he says okay so when the craft uh got close could you see anyone, anybody looking out of a porthole? I said, mm. I, I just said, no, it it didn't get that close. And then you you know go on, and then he come back and said, now George, when the craft landed, um, did did a door open? I said, the craft didn't land. I, I wish it had. <laughs> you know, I mm. wish I could say it did, but but it didn't. It just flew off, and it flew off at a very high rate of speed. So. You know, he went through all this highly suggestive questioning. Hmm. And and finally, you know, I said, you know, he's got to show me this last book. I said, uh, are you going to show me what's in, when are you going to show me what's in the last scrapbook? He said, well, George, you said you didn't see anybody, right? I said, right, I, I didn't. Uh, he said, well, he says, I, I'm, I'm not so sure you didn't. And I said, I didn't, and he says, well, I'll show you what's in here anyhow. And so when we went through this book, this book was filled with pictures 
and sketches of aliens. Really? All kinds. I mean, ridiculous looking. Some I'd seen in comic books. I said, oh, I've seen that. That's in a co- I've seen that in a comic book. He said, okay, <laughs> next one. And th- then, then he showed me a picture. I remember it very, very distinctly because my eyes must have just lit up like a cheap pinball machine. Was an uh, look like an alien laying on an examining table, <laughs> kind of like, I guess when when I saw the alien autopsy, you know, movie, I said, "Woo, that looks a lot like what the captain showed me." <laughs> I mean, I was probably forty or fifty years old when I saw that for the first time, and I said, "Well, I've seen that before." So uh, I asked him, I said, "Woo, is that real?" And he looked at me and kind of smiled. He said, does it look real to you? I said, it looks real to me. <laughs> Is it? And he just he just wouldn't answer. Uh, and then, then we got to the end of the book. And um, he says, okay, George, we're done. Thank you so much. Thank my mother. And it was about 3, in the clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. And he and the lieutenant got in their Cadillac and left. Now... Um, a lot of reconstruction has gone on uh, since then. Um, this was, you know, a long time ago. Um, the the one thing that uh, did was said it, it, as they were leaving. My mother asked asked the captain, "Did do you all investigate every sighting from a twelve year old boy? You must be getting hundreds of these." He says, "Ma'am," he says, "we get thousands of these reports." He said, "But." You know, you, this report was very interesting to us. Uh, we wanted to talk to George because he was very thorough in his documentation. We believe every word he said. Um, and to be honest, we had we had some corroborating uh, information from uh, other sources to corroborate hmm. the sighting. So we wanted to hear his story. And... Uh, he said, uh, the only thing I would ask you is uh, I would advise you... N- I can't order you, he said, but I would advise you strongly never to discuss this with anyone. Now, did he, never talk, yeah, did he actually ahead. say this to you, or was that to your mother? It was to my mother, but I heard it. Uh-huh. And, you know, and it was spoken really to both of us. And so I never discussed it until I was probably in my late 40s. Really? Wow. Yeah, I was silent for over 30 years uh, before I said anything about it. Wow. And uh, one of the things we left out, uh, you're probably going to bring it up, is who one of the gentlemen were. That's right. Um, I didn't know who these guys were. And um, in, in, the, the late ni- uh, in the late 19, no, in the late 1980s, early 1990s uh, of course we had the uh, famous Gulf Breeze sightings in mm-hmm. in the Pensacola area and um, my oldest daughter uh, was very very interested in in this and she became an active member of uh, the MUFON chapter there in, in Pensacola and she begged me to come to a meeting and tell the story and I said Beth I'm not going to do it I'm just not going to do it and so finally, it was at Christmas time, and she said, "Would you at least come to the Christmas party? They're having a, a nice Christmas party." So I went to the party, and it was really, really a nice affair. A lot of people were there, 
and uh, one of the guys I knew um, asked me about it. She said, he said, your, your daughter told me something about the sighting. I said, yeah, he said, there are a couple of Air Force guys here who would really like to meet you and talk to you. So these guys uh, were probably 20 years older than me, I guess, at the time. So they must have been uh, probably late 60s, early 70s. And and so I learned a great deal about them, and I told them the story. They said, well, number one, Eglin Air Force Base had no investigating authority. These guys did not come from, from Eglin. Number two, they most likely came down from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio because they were the primary investigators. Um, and number three, they may not even have been Air Force. They may have been CIA or NSA uh, because a lot of um, the investigators were wearing military uniforms during these investigations that, that went on in, in Project Blue Book in, in the later years. So all of that is partially true because I found out through the Internet by looking at pictures when I saw the picture of Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the head of Blue Book until 1953, I said, there he is. That's who, he, that's who came to see me. I, <laughs> I would know him anywhere. Slightly pudgy, chubby cheeks, um, just, a, just a charming individual to talk, talk to. And, and he must have been a special guy because it, for, for a captain, uh, somebody with the rank of captain, to have that kind of authority, uh, he must have been just a remarkable uh, officer. I mean, he had a distinguished combat record in, in, in Korea and so forth and, uh, you know, distinguished himself in every way. But, but he, he was evidently a superb manager, and that's why he was given the Blue Book assignment. Now, he had retired in 1953. He was no longer in the Air Force. He was out. Hmm. And he took a, a job as a consulting engineer, uh, aeronautical engineer, um, with uh, North American Aviation out in California and was living in California at the time, in 1956. So do you think they now, flew him all the way to Florida to talk to you? Yes. Yes, I do. Amazing. He, um, he collaborated with Blue Book after he left. And I don't know how many investigations he did, but now his book was first published in August of 1956. So um, he was already working on a revision. And, uh, you know, he may have wanted this material for his revision. Uh, how he found out about the sighting, I'm sure that, you know, he was in regular contact with uh, the Blue Book staff. The lieutenant turned out to be a Lieutenant Robert Olson. Uh, I don't know if Olson had retired or not. He was a, a little bit younger, but um, uh, I found his photograph on the Internet in, uh, with, with Ruppelt. And they were there together looking at some charts, and I said, whoa, there's the second guy. I'd know him anywhere. <laughs> so the, I only found out their identities uh, perhaps six months ago when I was doing this research. And I was thrilled to, to, to do this because, you know, I always wondered, who were these guys? <laughs> who were these guys that came came to see me? Now, 
maybe maybe Ruppelt was in Wright Patterson uh, on an assignment when something happened when he got the report and decided to fly down to Pensacola. Um, but they uh, they didn't drive over. I mean, they they probably flew into NAS Pensacola and uh, uh, got the rental car and from an admiral or something and uh, came on out came on out to see me. But uh, Captain Ruppelt um, had suffered a heart attack earlier that year, and um, I suspect that you know, to me he looked. He just looked uncomfortable, like he was sweating, and 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 he um, he never went out to the car to bring anything in. He just stayed in a chair the whole time, and and Olson went out and and got everything and brought it in. Uh, of course, he was a lower-ranking officer, and and I guess that would explain it. But it seemed that he was um, a, a bit fatigued, and uh, then of course we we know tragically. Uh, Captain Ruppelt uh, died of a heart attack in, in 1960. Um, his wife lived uh, out in California. I believe she passed away uh, the late 1990s or right around 2000. Uh, Captain Ruppelt had a brother who lived in uh, the Sarasota area, not far from me, but he passed, I believe, in 2010. So... Uh, Edward Ruppelt uh, was uh, one heck of a fine uh, officer, uh, outstanding career, uh, raised in, uh, I believe, in in Nebraska um, or Iowa, somewhere in in the Corn Belt area, and just um, was just uh, uh, an outstanding uh, young man and, and student in college, and engineer. And, uh, you know, uh, when you read about him, you can't help but admire him. And, and I certainly enjoyed my seven or eight hours of uh, uh, working with him on on this uh, on this little project that uh, I created. Um, he was a total gentleman, uh, and 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 we developed uh, really an excellent rapport uh, during that during that time. Uh, Captain or Lieutenant Olson was always in the background, so I never had much of a chance to uh, develop a relationship with him. But but with Ruppelt, it was uh, it was special. And and like I said, one, 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 the minute I saw his picture on the internet, I I didn't even know who it was. I said that that's the guy. There he is. And then I did the the background research on him. Ah, uh, yeah. And how about his book? Um, is like one of the, the uh, according to Alejandro Rojas, um, who was just on with the news, he thinks it's the best book on UFOs ever written. I, I would say uh, it certainly was. Uh, he was amazingly forthcoming in the book. Uh, I mean, he he didn't, it was not an effort to debunk at all. Uh, it was a very open-minded, objective look at it. Uh, and, and he went into uh, a great deal to report on, on some of the investigations that they had done. Um, however, uh, the word got out through channels that the, uh, the government or the Air Force 
was not pleased with the book. At first, they, you know, said, yeah, yeah, it's a very good book and all that. But back-channel information was delivered to Ruppelt that it was not something they were happy with, and they wanted him to put out a revision. Hmm. And uh, and so the a revised edition came out, I think, about a year and a half later. And in the revised edition, uh, he took a different view. Uh, he basically, uh, it was just one section at the end where he just kind of said, well, it, it, it's just all imagination. Hmm. And, uh, and then he died in, in 60. Now, there's been, you know, stuff on the Internet. Some people that knew him and lived there said that uh, one one woman, uh, uh, I think she may still be alive. She was 95 a couple of years ago, said that she was a neighbor of theirs uh, and that her husband and Ed Ruppelt uh, rode to work together every day. And what their work was, she said she didn't know because they never, ever discussed it. She said, but uh, she always believed and her husband believed that Ruppel was uh, murdered. Really? And uh, he did not die of natural causes. Uh, well, you said earlier he had a heart attack. Yes. Uh. Yeah, had the heart attack in 56 and then uh, fatal heart attack or whatever, in, in 60, yeah. 37 years old. So he was 32 years old when he had his first heart attack, which is very young. Very, very young. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Um, so brother, his brother passed away, I think his slightly younger brother, I think he was well in his upper 80s, 87. 88. Yeah, so it's just uh, uh, there's longevity in his family, but it didn't happen with him. Um, no, he didn't. <clears throat> So, uh, have you, uh, now, was this case uh, part of, let's see, was it uh, Grunt Project, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, it's in Blue Book. It is in Blue Book. This case is. Yes. Yes, it is. Now, interestingly enough, about five years ago, when I I'd, I'd attempted to go up to Montgomery, Alabama, where they had the archives, and... Um, when I finally got somebody that could talk, they said, oh, well, that's all now in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, oh, great. So I gave up on that, but then I, I somehow I found out that the archives were now online. And I found the what's called the, I'm not sure what the Air Force nomenclature is, but it's uh, 10073. That's the form number. Uh, I guess they call it 10073. All the reports are filed on that form number. I actually found that, and I wish that I had made a copy of it, but I didn't. Um, I found it and read read the, the report. It was a brief synopsis, but there were no field notes or anything else attached. And the conclusion was that I had witnessed, uh, it didn't give my name, but it, it said, you know, uh, I think it's a 12-year-old, you know, blah, blah, blah. Pensacola, uh, that I had witnessed a mid-air refueling operation. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty pretty clever way of of explaining it, and and that would have that would have worked fine, except when the two separated, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they don't do that. Um, so uh, that was the that was the explanation, but but no field notes were attached. Since that time, I've gone back to the blue back to Blue Book archives, and I have searched exhaustively. And all I can find is a reference to the date, a, a reference to um, just that there was a sighting and in Pensacola, Florida, that date, and it says, case missing. Huh. Missing? Case missing. How about that? So you so, actually saw it at one time and then it just, it's gone. As God is my witness, I saw it. And, and showed it to my wife and, 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 and kids. They all, they all saw it. We all saw it, read it together. I said, well, that's kind of a downer <laughs> because, you know, at least they could have said it was unexplained. But, no, I mean, that, that was the explanation, um, which I guess is plausible. And they said that it was a, a, the, the refueling was over Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, which is about 105 miles away by the crow. Hmm. Um, uh, it's pretty far away <laughs> to see lights pretty pretty darn close. So, um, wow. Evidently, they you know uh, they had seen something. They I don't know whether it was radar, visual, uh, civilian, military sighting. But somebody had seen something that really, really tweaked their interest. Um, the um, you know I've talked to you know some some experts in, back in the '90s, uh, guys that are you know are part of the regular talk show uh, group, and they basically say, well, you know, your sighting is 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 nothing. I mean, all you saw were night lights and that's nothing that wouldn't have justified them coming out. There must have been some other reason why they came out. And and when you consider that it was Ed Ruppelt himself and and Robert um uh, Olson. Yeah, Olson. Uh two of the, the mainstays in, in the organization, uh that they came almost three years after Ruppelt was out in a, in a civilian, you know, he still had his uniform, I guess, but, uh, uh, wow. I mean, what, 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 what prompted it? Um, now you mentioned earlier that they had, there was some, there was, uh, some cooperation. In other words, uh, someone else had seen this obviously was did you happen to notice was that noted anywhere as well no when you, it wasn't no and there was no other sighting uh in the area uh around those dates so it kind so of make you wonder if you're trying to put together a puzzle pieces maybe uh maybe someone saw the encounter uh even the sighting even closer uh, maybe someone saw it earlier and there was a landing um trying to figure out why they would try to lead you into telling them that the thing landed. They were, he was very, very uh, leading in that regard. Uh, and I remember feeling 
great discomfort, like I, I should be telling him, you know, that, that it had landed, but I couldn't because it hadn't. I mean, I just, I had to, I had to stick to my story, which was the only story I had, which was what I saw. Mm -hmm. Now um, you mentioned your, you you mentioned your parents were uh, divorced uh, at that time, but if, were you in touch with your father? Did you talk to him about this? Uh, Only in later life. uh, And that's an interesting part of the story. Um, I got to know my dad uh, really, really well in, in my 40s, uh, and and we became great friends uh, yeah. and uh, devoted to each other uh, up until the time of his, his death in, in, the, in the, the 90s. Um, but after, after World War II, um, well, but as I said, my dad flew uh, B-24s, heavy bombers, uh, over over England. He was not part of the 8th Air Force, but flew with the 8th Air Force. Those guys got to fly 25 missions if they survived. Of course, I think the average was about six or seven missions, uh, and then the pilots, you know, that's, that's how long they lived. Um, I'm not sure how many missions my dad flew, but he was there for, for a couple of years, and he didn't get to go home. Um, he he was uh, originally sent to Europe to to fly anti-submarine warfare, but we had no technology for doing that. But at the end of the war, uh, he was uh, sent to uh, Topeka, Kansas, to a secret training operation where they had developed, I guess, what we'd call a, a laser-guided or smart bomb. Um, they would uh, drop three buoys and triangulate on a submarine. And so uh, he told me, he said, look, he says, um, you know, I came home from the war with a, a, a pocket full of medals. And he said, but I have two accomplishments that I was very proud of. One, I never lost a crewman. He was shot down twice. Wow. But uh, crashed twice, but never lost a crewman. Jeez. And um, he said the second, and, and what I was most proud of, was when I came back from Kansas, um, I sunk a German U-boat that was, this was after the war was over. It was huh. a rogue U-boat. He said, I sunk a U-boat uh, in a PBY. And he said, uh, we dropped, you know, he said, we were out. We we, we uh, were near the end of our mission we were running low on fuel, and uh, uh, we uh, we got a, we, we spotted uh, uh, Periscope, and so uh, he said, my co-pilot said, "Hey, Bill, let's uh, let's head on back." He said, "No, I can't." He says, "There's a, a whole flotilla of uh, hospital ships going back." He says, uh, "That U-boat's going to have its way with them if we don't stop it." So he, he dropped the three buoys and then got a, a fix on the U-boat. And dropped the bomb that went, or, or the torpedo that went to it, and they could actually hear it. He says, "I could hear the baffles collapsing. I could hear the screams on board, and I knew that we had sunk that U-boat wow. because then it went all quiet." And um, he said, "That's that's my proudest accomplishment." He says, I, "He said I took a lot of lives with a lot of bombs and people that didn't need to die." He said, "But I saved a lot of lives of American GIs who were coming back." So. Uh, I just offer that story to give you a little insight into my dad. 
he uh, he was an engineer as well, and uh, like Captain Ruppelt, and uh, maybe I maybe I saw a little bit of uh, my dad and Captain Ruppelt, or, or kind of wanted that 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 dad figure is why I liked him so so much. But uh, in in having adult conversation with my dad about it, I asked him. I said, "Dad, did, did you ever?" see anything when you were flying uh any any ufos he says oh you mean foo fighters oh yeah my goodness oh he said yeah they they flew very matter oh they flew with us all the time (laughs) i said really (laughs) he says oh yeah they on on almost every mission they were they were flying with us i said well did they ever attack or anything no no they just they just they just flew like escorts and he was very matter of fact about it just like you know and um, so I later found out that, that, you know, when at working as a civilian at, at Fort Rucker, where he was uh, uh, chief of air safety as a civilian, he, uh, he actually, we believe, and can't prove, we think he's pretty sure he worked for the CIA. And, um, and I always wondered if, if, you know, with his secret stuff that he was doing, uh, you know, he never left the military. I mean, he, he was out of the military, but he never, I think like Ed Ruppelt, you know, he was just part of that clandestine service and, uh, never, never really left. So I wondered if, if, you know, when they saw my name, if, if, you know, if that, if that triggered it, you know, you know, what's this, is this guy, is this the son of this guy, does he, you know, but, but my mother said it never came up, um, uh, you know, with with Captain Ruppelt, that that he never asked. You know, uh, how's your husband doing or anything like that. <laughs> so that, that's probably you know a, a false lead, but but I often wondered if if that were the case. Wow. And I asked my I asked my dad also. I said, Dad, I said, if if UFOs are are real and the government knows, I said, how can that be kept a secret? He looked at me. He says, "I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you this." He says, uh, "And don't you ever ask me that again." He says, "They tell you that if you ever tell about this, that you will be killed, and so will every member of your family." What? He said, "That's how secrets are kept." He says, "Don't ever ask me again." Uh, <laughs> do you think he was exaggerating, or do you think not? Not this man. No. Uh-uh. Wow. No, he no exaggeration, and not not an exaggerating bone in this guy's body. Wow, amazing! So the Foo Fighters, uh, you when you read about that or you hear about that, they they had no idea. Uh, according to most, there was no idea what they were. Uh, there was speculation that they could have been from the Germans, or what did he think? Did he talk about what he thought they were? Not really. Um, he considered them to be friendly. Uh. Um, said uh, they were not hostile, hmm. and um, they they flew with us. They're like escorts, and uh, we were glad they were there. And and it's almost like they guided us. He almost, I think he said something like, "It's almost like they helped us find our targets." Uh, it, it was just. But he would he talked about that very freely. But when once we got into the subject of UFOs and secrets, 
boy, did the door ever close. Mm. And he says, I can talk about the Foo Fighters because every, everybody knew about that. Mm. He said, I'm not talking out of, out of school, but he, uh, he had, um, my dad had, uh, uh, cardiac arrest when he was, um, I think 60 years old and survived it. But when he went to uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham to have his quintuple bypass, um, there were two FBI agents in the operating room with him. Really? Wow. Yeah. They would not let him be sedated without the FBI there. So (laughs) that's the kind of secret clearance he had. Wow, amazing! So when um, the the thing that another oh, just to continue a little bit on the Foo Fighters again, the speculation is uh, you know why did they only happen during World War Two? You didn't hear about them afterwards, um, and you know some people. Uh, I'm not saying this is my thoughts at all, but some people have speculated that it's a time travel. Uh, situation that people are focusing on historic events. Now, I don't know if I buy into that in any type of way or not, but um, it is, uh, it's very interesting that that just seemed to happen during the war and then you didn't hear about it after it was like gone. That's right. I mean, um, where did the Foo Fighters go? Why, why were they just in uh, Northern Europe? I, I don't think they were ever, uh, perhaps they were recorded in, in uh, Southern Europe and Italy and Greece and places like that, but uh, they um, they were definitely in in Northern Europe where where my dad was was flying and uh, you know he, he said he oh yeah it's, I saw them all the time they they were always there. <laughs> now a like lot them. of people are saying that uh, they were similar to orbs like. Uh, and some said they were green and, you know, they're different colors. Did he did he go into detail? I know this is probably uh, a little redundant for you, but did he go into detail about them? Not really. Not mm-hmm. really. Uh, mm-hmm. He just called them Foo Fighters. And uh, it was, uh, they were like, he said they were like, flew with us in formation like escorts. So yeah. it was sort of uh, the impression I had from him was uh, they weren't just buzzing around, but they were kind of flying, uh, I guess, like if you look out on, on the wing and you see a light out there on your, you know, uh, on, on the end of your wing uh, or a landing light, it's just, uh, it's just like seeing a light out there. It's just flying with them. Um, most of my dad's flying was at night. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, going back to this, um, all the way back to the encounter you had and back to the visit from uh, Rupalt and uh, uh, Owens. Olson. Olson, I mean. Yeah. Uh, it is very unusual that they would spend, uh, for lights in the sky basically, <laughs> that they would spend seven or eight hours in uh, in the home. Now, you said you felt comfortable, but when they wanted to speak to you alone, did, I mean, uh, that must have been, you know, for a young kid, um, you must have felt uh, a little uncomfortable, I would think. Actually not. Uh, Rupert was so uh, warm and engaging huh. that that he was just like, 
you know, uh, it was like he, we'd become friends. And so I, I trusted him, uh, and, and didn't, you know, Olson, uh, you know, I'm not so sure I trusted him. I mean, uh, because he was always talking, uh, above my head, so to speak. And, uh, it just didn't seem to have the, the same, the same degree of, uh, of, of empathy. Um, but, uh, whether maybe perhaps perhaps he wasn't even interested in in the in the case, but Rupert clearly was uh, uh, interested in wanting to get all the information he could. But no, uh, I was I was pretty relaxed by then, and uh, I was I was wanting to to end it. I mean, I was I was ready to. I mean, the day was shot, and I obviously wasn't going to get to the pool. So yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to get get the heck out of there and uh and and finish up yeah um, wow so um as you moved on you said you didn't really talk about this for 40 years but did you keep a keen interest in ufos oh yes oh yes um always uh you know kept up with it you know would read about it occasionally buy a book about you know and and uh so i I've I've kept up with it um, all along, and uh, you know I'm 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 certainly don't consider myself uh, you know an expert. I'm not ready to you know I'm not interested in going on the tour or or, or you know going to any conferences or anything like that. Uh, uh, you know I'm happy to talk to you and the audience uh, about it tonight and 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 share it because th- it's my story and it's. The, it's the same story I told Captain Ruppel, you know, 50, however many years ago, 55 or more mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. 60 years ago, is it? 60, yeah. I yeah. Guess it is. Um, 60 we... years ago. <laughs> it, uh, it's still a very, very uh, vivid memory. Uh, I, I've, I've done some work uh, on trying to reconstruct things um, through visualization. Um, I've gone back and found uh, old pictures of the airport, how it used to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, you know, the house, of course, uh, that we lived in is no longer there. It's bulldozed years ago. But I've gone back and tried to sketch the floor plan and, and to look at some, some old pictures of, of the house inside and out and, and trying to sort of reconstruct uh, the events um, my youngest daughter, uh, Laura, who I think you may have spoken to in the past, um, Laura's an excellent artist, and, and and she does, she can do anything in in drawing. So uh, we're we're gonna we're working on a collaboration, uh, what I'd call sort of not not a comic book because it's not funny, but but an illustrated view of of what happened. So there would be pictures of of you know of, of scenes uh, all the scenes that i remember vividly to try to you know get her to describe i would describe it get her to draw it and then we would have a narrative that goes with that and and that's i mean that's just for my own amusement really mm-hmm. um but i i think that visual is i you know my doctorate's in educational psychology and 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 i know that visualization is is very very important uh to to learning and and to uh and to memory 
Um, we're getting a thunderstorm here. I don't know if you heard the clap of thunder there, but uh, it just, just cracked. Um, so creating those images helps to bring back some of the details. And I, I found that, that, that my memory seems to improve with with the visualization of, of the different scenes of, of where we were. And I, I've got some pretty good embedded visuals of, of, of it. And uh, because I've, I've thought about it, I may not have told the story a lot over the years, but I've thought about it many, many times. Um, and and it's, it's because not just of the visit, but of what caused the visit, the sighting itself. Mm. Uh, that was um, that was just very very uh, powerful and, and 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 thrilling to see something like that uh, because I've never seen anything like it since. Have you had any type of sighting at all since that time? Um, one or two nights when we were living in Pensacola in in the uh, uh, early nineties. Uh, my wife and I went out with the uh, MUFON group. They would go out to the Pensacola Bay Bridge and and look. And um, um, we did we did see um, uh, a moving light. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't nearly as impressive as what I saw when I was twelve. Um, and some of the people, you know, said they they saw a lot of things, and I'm I'm sure some of them did. Um, you know, but but. I, I try to remain a healthy skeptic, and um, you know, if it's somebody I know and, and believe, um, I've had you know some folks that I've known and, and you know uh, worked with over the years that I, I believe, and when they tell me some they saw something, um, you know, I'm, I'm I think there there are probably a lot of people like me who have seen things that just never really talk about it. Yeah, that's um, true. That that uh, I, I'm sure it's a large percentage. You know, I forgot to mention that if anyone's listening live and they would like to call in and ask our guests a question, you're welcome to do that. That's six zero three nine six seven four zero three zero. So during the uh, late nineteen eighties, the Gulf Breeze incident. Um, you all right? Yes, I'm uh, here. Okay. Uh, you know it. A lot of that, uh, a lot of people claim that was a hoax, or part of it was a hoax. Some of it was possibly. Did you, were you uh, uh, paying attention to that when it was going on? Uh, I certainly did. Um, of course, we didn't know who Ed was uh, until much later. And then, uh, uh, much to my surprise, it turned out to be Ed Walters, and, and I knew Ed Walters. Um oh. He's like a real same. estate developer or something, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, a builder. Uh, mm-hmm. v- very, very nice guy, and and just a, a regular bi- businessman. Um, we shared the same CPA. Uh, the CPA uh, and I were fraternity brothers. We've known each other for years, and and I talked to him about it, and he says, yeah, he says Ed is just as level-headed as as anybody, and uh, so. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to know. Um, um, Fenner McConnell, who was the uh, uh, medical examiner there in uh, Escambia County, a uh, uh, really a, a, a wonderful person and outstanding uh, f- 
a physician um, had you know he had seen and and when Fenner when Fenner spoke I mean you knew this this is can't say it on the air but he's a no-nonsense guy <laughs> he wouldn't make it up if <laughs> you know there's no way Fenner McConnell would ever make anything up and his sister um, lived in Mississippi and she had a sighting about the same time and she was visited by some men in black and they threatened her and when Fenner told that story I, I believed him mm. I absolutely believed him sadly Fenner was uh, accidentally killed uh, he was uh, a great jogger and was jogging across the Bob Sykes Bridge one day and I guess somebody uh, just wasn't looking where they were going and uh, ran him down and killed him mm. but um, so there was there was some um, people in that group uh, that that I went to, went to elementary and high school with and that I've known all my life, and um, these are these are people that don't don't lie and don't tell don't make up stories. I mean, you know, this is um, Pensacola is the deep south, and uh, uh, that kind of you know people that make up tall tales uh, they're ostracized and so when these guys come out and say they saw something uh, you better believe they're telling the truth uh, that they saw they saw something they couldn't explain now maybe there may be an explanation for it uh, besides uh, aliens mm -hmm. operating equipment but um, I mean there were there were a lot of stories that that popped up there a lot of stories that popped up yeah and uh, so that was that was a fascinating time um you know uh, people would say oh well it's just mass hysteria and uh, all that but uh, yeah i mean you you hear you hear of ed walters but there was also a lot of people that were witnessing something oh, going on prominent prominent people mm. prominent people in the community I mean, one one guy I know is an Eagle Scout, and this guy would never he would never tell a lie. <laughs> well, here here's the thing that seems to happen, um, you know, because I understand when someone bought um, Ed Walter's house, they found a model of the craft up underneath some insulation in the attic when they were changing the heating system, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, so. What seems to happen, and I've seen this and talked about it uh, before, is that, yes, uh, someone does have a sighting. It's it's uh, monumental to them. Um, and then time goes on, and they're, they're trying to, like, keep it alive or, or keep themselves in the news or whatever it is. Um, and then they, they seem to go wrong. This seems to happen to a number of people where um, someone will either hoax or exaggerate yeah. a story just to keep keep uh the spotlight on them on themselves yeah. so um, it's well i can only speculate that's what happened with ed but i don't really know i i don't either um and and i can't i can't be the judge of that um mm. nor, nor i want to be but um uh, there were enough other people though that um uh, were that that had credible sightings that uh, make me believe that uh, at least part of what Ed, Ed said he saw was real. Uh, 
So uh, whether, you know, what pressures he felt uh, after that, I, I don't know. I'm sure it must have been extensive. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you've gone this long. Um, you've, you're paying attention to what's going on in the UFOs. There's actually a symposium coming up we were talking about earlier with, with Alejandro in uh, Florida coming up this year. It's a, it's a real good one. Have you, uh, I know you mentioned you went to the Christmas party, but have you ever attended any type of um, UFO convention of any type? Never have. Never yeah. have. Well, um, uh, it's going to be a good one this year. I just can't remember where it is in Florida, but that's in August. Uh, a lot of really good speakers there. So what do you think? Um, I always like to kind of, get people's different opinion. What do you think they are? Do you think it's uh, a possible, it's possible that these are extraterrestrial visitations or what are your thoughts? Uh, I I think it's probably today uh, what people are seeing is probably some kind of reverse engineered craft that we've we've managed to fly or or maybe not even reverse engineered maybe it's just something you know in the skunk works that we came up with that that looks looks really weird mm-hmm. uh, you know when we first saw the stealth i mean it was kind of like whoa look at that uh so but but the the old sightings the sighting that i saw in 1956 and the sightings back then, um, those those had to be, I mean, they they were not Russians, they were not our secret planes flying around, uh, because we didn't have anything to do that, and really we still don't have anything that I know of that can do that. So uh, I I believe that the, at least the the older sightings um, were, were, extraterrestrial in, in nature. That, that's just the, the best guess, I think. I think it's the most logical guess. Mm. Um, and, and I say that without any emotion or, uh, you know, uh, titillation. I, I just really think that's that's probably the best guess, that, uh, you know, we we hadn't been alone. Now, how long they've been coming here or, or whatever, uh, who knows. And um, but But I suspect that there's, there's, it's more than just uh, you know idle curiosity. I mean, they, they they're here. If 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 they're here, they're here for a reason. Mm. Uh, if they're communi- if they're not communicating with us uh, in in a public sense, then there, there's a reason for that. Um, I I had a I I brought this up probably about five or six times on the show out of two hundred some odd episodes, and that is uh, I spoke to someone years ago that told me they were part of uh, the Air Force that was investigating UFOs during Vietnam, and um, which wasn't supposed to be happening, or I mean anyway the bottom line is. Um, I asked why why were they you know what are they and why are they here and he said uh he said uh because we're a petri dish and, and I mean it was just like a blunt statement like that 
like we're being yeah. observed. Uh, so I, I just thought it was an interesting statement, whether he was uh, BSing or telling the truth. It's still uh, an interesting thought. Well, there uh, there's some pretty pretty smart guys in in academia that uh, are, let's just say a little bit out of the mainstream because main, mainstream science is uh, extremely conservative and um, uh, non risk taking. Uh, but there are there are some very bright rebels. That, that believe, uh, and, and I, I happen to share this belief, that uh, our DNA has been modified, um, uh, that, uh, you know, this, you know, the, the whole theory of evolution uh, is just, is, is something I personally uh, don't find much scientific merit for it um, or logic for it. Um, you know, Homo sapiens. When it comes to humans, I agree with you. Yeah, uh, yeah, when it comes to uh, Homo sapiens, uh, you know, we uh, we appeared very, very rapidly yes. about 100, 120,000 years ago. It doesn't make any sense. I've said that. Oh, I, no, I know so, this is a show about UFOs, but I've said that a couple of times. It just seems yeah, so yeah. quickly as far as no. evolution to develop like this. I mean, uh, you know... D- how how it was done who knows uh you know was is it a completely new species that was introduced from somewhere or is it a is a genetic modification who who knows uh how it was done and you know i'll probably we'll probably never know in our lifetime and Mm. and i'm not sure it, it 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 makes any difference but uh you know the extinction of of neanderthal and um you know, did Homo sapiens just simply, is just are we just vicious killers that put these guys out, um, or you know, did we interbreed with them, or uh, you know, <laughs> it just it just happened too quickly, and and they can you know hypothesize all they want, but I just think it's foolishness. I mean, it's just it's just much it's a much better explanation to. To think that we are, in, in in essence, an experiment, and um, uh, yeah, but but mainstream science, you know, boy, they just uh, they can't handle it because because they would be wrong. You know, everything they've learned would be wrong. Yeah, they don't want to rewrite the textbooks. No, There's no, a... it 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 would be uh, humiliating, and uh, you know, their their arrogance is. Uh, is uh, unbelievable. So, yeah, I know you hear a lot about how uh, that there are discoveries in archaeology that are that don't make any sense, and you just don't hear about them. Um, there's there's a question up on the message board. Um, someone wants to know: Do you ever go sky watching now? Uh, occasionally I do. I mean, when I go out at night, um, I always look around, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, I haven't, I haven't seen anything, uh, in, in about 25 years. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not looking, looking for anything, but <laughs> it, well, if, if I saw something, it would be great, but yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've had my moment. 
I, I had my my surprise, and yeah. uh, age twelve. That, that's enough. Yeah, enough for a lifetime. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's since I've had my sighting, uh, which was only in two thousand six. Um, I am constantly looking to the sky, and I think that's unlike you know an average person. You know, once you have a sighting, I think it just kind of changes the way you think about things and uh, also changes uh, the way you observe. Because I think, you know, the average person is not really even looking up in the sky too much. I would agree. Um, when I say, you know, I had my moment uh, 60 years ago, I I, I kind of feel like I've I had enough. I mean, <laughs> I don't need to see anything else. It might frighten me too bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, you do I hear. I was really frightened. I was really, really scared as yeah. a 12-year-old. Really scared. Well, it kind of, it's a, a new uh, paradigm. Basically, when you see something like that, then everything changes, you know. I mean, not not to everybody. You know, I've talked to people that have had major sightings and it never they never think about it like it just isn't they don't really care you know i mean it surprises the heck out of me because i think it's probably one of the most important uh questions to be answered i i agree um you know I, my, my sighting was certainly uh not not i get, for me it was very exciting but when you when you Put it among all the sightings that you know where people have actually seen a craft low, you know, at a low level or in a field or or you know come over the house or or you know, I mean, my mind mine just pales by comparison, um, and and certainly I would love to see something like that, but I've seen enough uh, to to know that they're real and. To me, the rest is just a matter of common sense and logic, uh, that uh, we're not alone. Uh, there, you know, Are there more than one type out there? I mean, if there's one type, there's more than one. And are we being visited by more than one? Probably so. Um, and will they ever make themselves known to us? Maybe, maybe not. Um, Maybe in the past they have made themselves known, and that 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 knowledge was lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, at, at some of the uh, the old uh, art that's you know found from you know thousands of years ago makes you you wonder if if they they really didn't have some serious contact with these these folks. Yeah, there was uh, a question that came up on the message board. Someone wanted to know what is your thoughts on the ancient ancient alien theories. Probably so. I mean, if they're here, if they, you know, did they just show up in uh, 47 yeah. for the first time? Uh, I don't think so. Right. Um, well, there. I mean, there were sightings all around before that. So when you go back, you, you can find them. So how long have they been coming? Probably a long, long time. Yeah. Long, Jacques Vallée and another author put together a book um fairly recently that is about ancient sightings which uh is i i would really like to read that that's uh, very fascinating to me and yeah if they're visiting now um they could have been visiting a million years ago who
Who knows? Doesn't they could. really matter that uh, much. They they absolutely could have, and who knows what what they look like? I mean, some of the uh, the the pictures I saw, um, I don't know where uh, Ed Ruppelt, uh got them, but uh, there there were some pretty scary, pretty pretty scary critters uh, that that he showed me pictures of, and and I didn't ever want to meet them. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> now, when you were uh, let's going back to that. Um, we have a lot of people that are just joining the show now. And uh, so going back to that, this was a, a notebook that you were shown. And um, <clears throat> would you say, pardon me, would you say that there were a lot of pictures of so-called aliens and some of them were just uh, abstracts from uh, comic books and things like that? Uh, yeah, it was a real it was a real mix, real mix. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it kind of looked like a uh, creature from the Black Lagoon or something like that, or Lizard Man, and you know, some looked more like insects, and, um, and and some just didn't didn't seem to make didn't look like anything. Uh, but uh, uh, I do remember the the little guy, uh, gray fellow, on the on the table, and and that that. That that was a vivid image in in my mind, and uh, especially so in 1956. I, I don't think yeah, there was never anything, seen that before. Yeah, I'd that never wasn't seen. really being shown. You know, uh-huh. not like the alien autopsy film that was a hoax or anything like that. You know, this is going back. But what? Even though it was a hoax, it was it was darn close to what what he had a picture of. <laughs> is that right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it it was uh, it was strange, very very strange. Uh, but my whole family is is interested in in the subject matter. Uh, both both my daughters and my son have, have have you know seen things in the sky that they thought were were uh, there. They've uh, uh, you know we don't have any evidence or you know photographs or anything like that but um they're they're very open to the idea and i think because we raised them to be open-minded and uh to to the possibility uh that that this is you know what we what we perceive to be uh reality uh, may not be quite exactly what what we suppose it is so yeah. um they, they have um been 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 part of the story i mean they've i've I shared the story with them of course and uh, that's that's how you know my daughter i guess got me to come out of the closet so to speak <laughs> and, and um, be open about it how how old was your daughter when you told her the one that has interests in you know in in ufos and mufon and all that how old was she when you told her the story let's see she she was not in college yet, so she must have been. She must have been in high school. Must mm-hmm. have been like a senior in high school when uh, we went to the uh, went to the um, the Christmas party uh, that was held by Mufon. So she was one of she was the youngest person in the Mufon group, and uh, really. Uh, that was that was very fortunate because I I don't know if I ever would have really uh, opened up about it, but um, 
meeting meeting the uh, the other people and and uh, uh, that were were involved in it was re- really insightful uh, and and helpful to me to recognize what what had happened and it was not just a, a quirk of fate but and and the subsequent research that I've done by being able to uh, thank goodness again for the internet that I was able to recognize and identify the, the two officers who came to see me. Someone wanted to know earlier, they had a message up on the board, um, wanted to ask you if you were 100% sure that's who it was. 100%. Uh-huh. 100%. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, uh, I would say, uh, as far as Lieutenant Olson, um, the the guy I saw the picture of is a dead ringer. Now, there's only one picture of Olson I could ever find on uh, anywhere, so I don't have all, all that. Ropel has multiple pictures mm-hmm. at different stages of his career, and and so when I say it was Ed Ropel, ain't no doubt in my mind that was him. Mm. It was it was him. No yeah. question. No question in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this has been um, really interesting. We still have a little while to go here, but I think uh, one of the most uh, interesting parts of your story is your your father. That uh, um, basically, when he was threatened to never talk about UFOs, I mean, it must have uh, really sparked your curiosity enough to want to, you know get more information out of him. It did. Um, but, but he made it clear that, uh, <laughs> that was a, a, a closed area. Yeah. And, uh, uh we weren't going to go there in, in discussions. Um, but he, uh, he was kind of a spooky guy <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he just never, talked much about anything until late in life. Um, mm-hmm. And he n- never talked about what he did during the war uh, very much. Uh, typical of, of that generation, the great generation. Oh, yeah. That, you know, we were doing our jobs, and that was it. Well, they were, they were doing more than just jobs. Uh, these were... Uh, re- remarkable people, and uh, you know how he survived. You know, two two plane crashes where oh, amazing. Basically, basically they were shot down, but uh, uh, he was um, he was a real tough guy. Uh, hmm. Purple Heart wounded. I mean, yeah, he said, "Oh yeah, we were all shot up." <laughs> kind of like, "Oh yeah, we all got shot, but uh, you know, took our we took our lumps, but uh, we didn't. I never lost anybody." Wow. And he was really, really proud of of that. He said, "Everybody wanted to fly with him." In fact, in Twelve O'clock High, the movie, um, there was an incident where I think they had the chaplain or somebody was smuggled on board. Uh, to uh, because they always wanted to to see the the bombs drop, 
and they they had a, a rough time or almost got shot down or, or whatever it was and that actually happened uh to my dad when they were on a bombing mission and uh they were shot up pretty bad by by measure between the flak and the messersmiths uh he said they were down to two engines and and just limping and he he said he went on the the PA and he said okay guys he says we got we got three choices one he says um we can bail out now and uh be prisoners of war two we can uh fly to the cha- you know tr- get to the the channel and and try to ditch in the channel and hope they'll pick us up or three we can just hold on for dear life and try to get back to to dry land and they, he says <laughs> it was unanimous uh loud vote get us back home <laughs> they didn't want to jump out they didn't want to ditch they wanted to get back home well he said when they came across the coast of england actually i think he said they were up north uh in 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 scotland he said we we were about 100 feet above the tree line and he says we, no way were we getting back to base so he said i was going to have to put it down and he said, you know, it was a big old swampy area. He said, so I found, I said, looking, you know, he said, i got to find me two big trees. And so he went between two big trees so it would shear off the wings Jeez. and the fuselage would just go go forward. Oh, and and so uh, he said, just, just as we came in, I told everybody, I said, okay, hold on and duck. And he said, we... Uh, the the co-pilot and the navigator and I ducked, and he says a good thing we did because the the water from the swamp blew the windshield over their heads. It would have decapitated them Jeez. had they been looking up. And uh, he said, of course, the whole the whole plane was filled with water and uh, and mud, and but it stopped. He said pretty pretty quickly, <laughs> and they had uh, I believe. I never can remember it was 11 or 12 man crew, but I, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's 11 man crew. So he said they had a they had a drill that they had worked on. That if they ever had that happen, everybody would get out and assemble about 50 meters in front of the fuselage, in front of the the nose. So he said everybody kind of you know bailed out. Of course, they had no no communications because everything was shot. And so he said. They all they all piled piled out and you know everybody seemed to be okay, and he, he looked he looked at everybody and everybody was coated in mud. He said it was like a minstrel show. <laughs> he said it's like you know we're all dark, and so he counted. He said okay, let's count one two three four five six. Count all the way eleven twelve. No, that can't be right. So he said, I'm gonna count one the next more time. One. Yeah, they had an extra one on board. <laughs> So he counted again in 11, 12. So he pull, pulls out his Colt 45 and says, don't anybody move. We got a freaking saboteur on board. <laughs> <laughs> and this one guy said, uh, Commander, Commander Gaines, it's uh, it's me, uh, so-and-so. He says, uh, I the guy snuck me on. And so <laughs> he told him, he said, uh, he, he said, I always wanted to go on a mission because all I did was load the bombs and I wanted to see what happened <laughs> he oh, says goodness. i promise he says a stowaway court marshal yeah. I, I i'll never do it again so my dad says okay you don't ever do it and that scene something similar to that was in 12 o'clock high wow. that movie how about that so, uh, 
Uh, yeah. Going back was... all the way back, uh, we have a question up on the message board. I think a pretty good one. Um, and we only have about uh, five minutes left here. But going back to the videos that you were shown by the two Air Force officers, um, can you describe what they actually showed you? You know, some you said you've seen before, but uh, were there some, like, really interesting ones? This goes back to 1956, so there couldn't have been. Well, actually, there there was quite a bit of filming in the 52 and stuff like that, but... Uh, can you describe more of what you saw? Do you remember? Well, these these were all films. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was a film they showed me. Uh, there was no video in those days. Oh, that's what I meant, films, yeah. I know it was a yeah, projector and a screen. All, yeah. you know, projector, and, and, and it was a, a film of a film. And and uh, the, the film quality was not good. I mean, it was jerky. And and you would you you could see the objects you know moving around and and it was more more trying to find out is that is that similar to what you saw they were trying to get a visualization of of what I saw they never actually showed me anything that was like what I saw so well it's a light it's bright and you know some some of the shapes were were kind of uh, a little bit oblong looking that were moving. Um, but I had, I had seen, I guess in a movie or something somewhere, I had seen one of those films. Cause I remember saying, Oh, I've seen that before. Uh, mm-hmm. but that's not what I saw. And, uh, I wish I could remember everything they, they showed me, but it was, it was a full reel. I mean, it was like a newsreel of, of, you know, one, and one after another, and and there was nothing in between <laughs> that I recall. Like, okay, this is Los Alamos, nineteen forty-eight. This is Topeka, Kansas, nineteen fifty. Or, I mean, it was nothing to say what it was. It was just here's here's the raw data. Is what about this? What about that? Boy, I'd love to see that reel today. Oh, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I love to see the field notes and and everything mm. that they had. Um, they don't destroy that stuff. We know that it's 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 in a vault somewhere, um, where uh, we we don't know. We, you know, I'm, uh, trying I'm trying to find out where those records might be. I understand that that Captain Ruppelt's personal notes and records uh, actually at one time, and they may still be at the Heineck Center. Uh, I've I've communi- I've called them, written to them, and and I can't get an answer. Nobody ever answers the phone. Nobody ever responds to uh, messages. So hmm. um, I think there's a, a retired I can't remember his name offhand, but there's a retired professor who has written a very exhaustive book uh, on on the subject and probably has more information on Ruppelt than anybody else. But I've been unable to. Um, get in contact with him. So if anybody, you know, out in the audience knows some of these uh guys that are are prominent uh that could could help me find those notes. I'd love to see I'd love to hear the the real to real. I'd love to hear I'd like to hear my 12-year-old voice telling the story. <laughs> I'd like to see the I'd like to see those scrapbooks one more time and see yeah. how much is is real and how much is is what I may have imagined in 60 years since then. Right. So if anyone's out there listening, 
that can somehow get any of this access or stumble across it, they can always get a hold of me and I can reach out to you. So thank you so much for the oh, show this evening. It's a it's a pleasure. I hope I didn't talk your ear off. Um, well, that's but, what you're uh, supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was great being able to share, and uh, I'm sure I must have left something out along the way, but I've tried to be as <laughs> uh, as comprehensive as I could. Yeah, it was great. All right, thanks a lot. You're you're welcome, Martin, and thank you for having me on. Take care. Bye. All right, so that's it for tonight. Thank you so much for watching. And remember, we'll be back next week with Chris Chris Lito. And remember also to keep your eyes to the sky.